Welcome to Luncheon and Learn. In today's episode, Bree and I discuss why talking about race, gender, sexual orientation, pretty much you name it, can be so hard. We will also share with you our featured follow, an educator who isn't afraid to stand her ground when things get uncomfortable. And finally, we will leave you with some personal reflections to consider in the week ahead. Let's grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together. In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators, Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty, create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman. I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. And I'm Brianna Clover. In today's episode, Bree and I dig into the psychology behind our resistance to talking about topics that make us so uncomfortable. We examine some typical and predictable reactions and finally offer some tactics to move the conversation forward. Jess, as you and I experience on an almost daily basis, it can be incredibly upsetting for people to enter into discussions on around topics like social justice, oppression, and discrimination. They are all such politically charged topics that emotions run high and close to the surface. So close to the surface. Um, You know, for so many people, this may be the first time they've experienced such a sustained period of conversation around inequality. And that persistence has meant that they are forced to engage in dialogue that is unfamiliar, especially if they are in the dominant race or gender or class. Yes. And because we always try to consider a historical lens in our approach to unlearning, I think it's important to acknowledge that for the dominant group, often these conversations are bringing to light information that is counter to their lived experience and everything that they've been taught. And maybe most difficult to engage means that we have to assess our own personal connection to these issues, Mm -hmm. which naturally triggers a psychological pattern of resistance. You're exactly right. And for people who have experienced inequality in their lives, witnessing this resistance causes further pain and sometimes increases the divide. And this is why these conversations are so hard. For the dominant group, especially, they can fall victim to that good, bad binary that we often talk about. And that's the idea that we're either or. So inequality is bad. So if I admit that I have a role in that, then I must also be bad, which is counter to my desired identity of being a good person. So to even consider that I'm part of the problem triggers feelings of defensiveness, guilt, even shame. Um, and for some, there can even be periods of guilt. I know I've felt that along my journey of understanding of how my own white identity has shaped my interactions with others. But I've come to believe that these feelings, those moments of feeling uncomfortable, that's, that's all around unlearning and reframing. And for me, those are indicators of change, personal movement. And while they're not always pleasant, they're not also problematic. Um, And I think that's key. Being uncomfortable doesn't mean that you're on the wrong path. Yeah. It reminds me of when I'm in a really difficult yoga class and, and my yoga instructor will say, 
push to the point of discomfort. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I know that when I feel that sensation, you know, where my muscles are trembling and I want to get out of a pose, that's when I know something is happening. And I think that that happens for us in these difficult conversations as well, that if we yeah. don't experience that, that tension, that point of feeling uncomfortable, we're not actually changing. Yeah. I also think it's important to point out that for historically marginalized groups, these conversations can also bring up strong emotions, but for different reasons. The discomfort is often not from the unlearning or awakening, but from the frustration that the dominant group has lived in close proximity to these issues and have been completely blind, blind to the inequality, to the oppression, and to the blatant discrimination. And for me personally, this often leaves me with a mix of emotions. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's hurt. Disappointment comes to mind. And oftentimes it is a feeling of grief. And I think about um, those stages. I don't know where I learned them from, but the stages of grief, I think they could easily be applied to uh, the grief and loss of racism. It's interesting to think about like, on both sides. So even the dominant group may have feelings of grief, but for just different reasons. Yeah, exactly. So Brie, would you mind sharing some of the typical things we hear, particularly when we see resistance and defensiveness that are triggered by what is truly a psychological desire to protect our quote unquote, good identity? Absolutely. And before I share, I do want to acknowledge that this exercise is for those in dominant groups and can be a trigger for those who are in oppressed groups. So I just wanted to make sure to to start off by saying that um, for our listeners. But things we hear often are, I don't see color, or the only race is the human race, or we need to transcend race. These conversations just divide us. Or they're just playing the race card. Or focusing on race is what divides us. Or I was picked on because I was white or I grew up poor, so I don't have race privilege. Or even things said to or about women. For example, you're too nice to lead a team. Or that was quite bossy. Or don't be a drama queen. Or even cat fight. I hate that one. I know. I know. Is it your time of the month? Oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Actually, I have heard that one. And the last one I'm going to share is calm down. It was just a joke. That's like, yeah, that just makes me cringe. And the microaggressions. And those are like those thinly veiled instances of everyday racism, homophobia, sexism, and more that we see in the world. And it could be sometimes an insult. Other times it's an errant comment or a gesture. And oftentimes microaggressions are unintentional interactions or behavior, but either way they communicate some sort of bias toward historically marginalized groups. And I thought I'd share some microaggressions that I've personally experienced. You're so articulate or you don't sound black Hmm. or insert discriminatory comment about black people but you're different (laughs) or no offense, but, and then insert discriminatory comment about black people. And 
this kind of conversation really reminds me of, you know, personal experiences that I've had throughout my career where I witnessed or was a recipient of a microaggression and or a discriminatory comment. And I think especially in workplaces where there's a culture of um, a fear of speaking up or a fear of retribution for speaking up. I think it's important to remember that, especially if you're in that dominant group, it's likely that you don't fall, if you don't fall into one of these categories and you are in a dominant group that you probably haven't heard of these thing, kinds of things happening, but it doesn't mean that they don't happen. I think it's also important to remember that experiencing this kind of any kind of discrimination or microaggressions, the experience of speaking up about that is often more costly, or I, I would argue all the time more costly than what that person would have to gain. And I think that's yeah. just an important reminder. It's an incredibly important reminder. And people, when they hear things that are hard for them to believe, a lot of times they will question the person that's giving them the, the information and yeah. almost forcing them to prove it. Mm -hmm. And that's a reason why so many people don't speak up. Yeah, you're exactly right. And let's let's carry that forward a little bit more of the list of proof sources, um, some examples for why what that person said or did couldn't be discriminatory. My best friend is black or I'm part Native American or I have biracial children or my wife works outside of the home. I get it. Or, well, my ancestors didn't own slaves. Or we're friends. I don't even think of you as a Mexican. And all of these function in a similar way. They function to exempt the person saying it from any responsibility for participation in the problem. For instance, the race comments ultimately take race off the table and they close rather than open any further exploration. And in so doing, they protect the status quo. You know, I, I hear these things on a regular basis. Yeah. And I know that you do too. And for so long, when I would hear these things, my first reaction, especially before, you know, we've had done so much work was either one to get out of the conversation as soon as possible mm -hmm. <laughs> or two, just to fight back. Yep. Um, and neither one of those are effective. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that led me to look for a third option. Yes, I'm 100% with you. And some days, being completely honest, I fall back to options one or two, probably more than I'd like to admit. Yeah. And so for us and what our work is based around, there's this third option. <laughs> and that is conversation based on a commitment to be brave always grounded in education and with the acceptance that it will be uncomfortable. And also, this is so important that we remember along the way not to do all the work. Our role is not to convince people that we have to what we have to say is true. Even if people are resistant, we can't persuade them to see things as we do. Our goal for this third option is to expose the hidden biases that may need to be unlearned and to create opportunities for new knowledge to be evaluated, both evaluated and incorporated. And I have to commonly remind myself that the work we are doing is planting seeds. We can plant the seeds, but those receiving them have to have a responsibility to water them. If we use the, the, the planting seeds analogy, enrich the soil over time and tend to their care over time. I love that example. Mm-hmm. 
And as we think about how we move the conversation forward, I know for us, there are two main things that we believe have to happen. And the first is so important and, and you cannot skip over it. And that is, we have to be able to name the problem. Yeah. So does in order to dismantle oppression, whether it's rooted in racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, classism, your sexual identity, your sexual orientation, whatever it is, we must first be able to name that problem. And because these systemic barriers perpetuate injustice and because they are so insidious and complex, if people aren't willing to examine them with an intention to learn and expand their understanding, they will unconsciously maintain their biases. And sometimes we want to blow past number one in our efforts to fix the problem. But if we can't name the problem or find common ground on what we are actually tackling, we can't move forward. And doing so creates activity and effort that is pointless. We aren't moving in the same direction. I just simply ran ahead of you. And I see, we see this in our work. Oftentimes organizations will come to us seeking a DEI strategy. And the problem is that they often can't agree on what they want to solve. They just want us to fix this unnamed problem so that they can move on on to the real business of running the business. And I often reference a quote from activist and law professor that kind of sums up what you're talking about here, Jess. Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, she says, when there's no name for a problem, you can't see a problem. When you can't see a problem, you can't solve it. Mm. Amen. (laughs) And we have learned that the hard way. Yes. So Brie, if we can get past number one, if we can name that problem, will you share with our listeners what's waiting behind door number two? Well, unfortunately, it's not an acronym or a workshop. It is so painfully simple to say it out loud, but so difficult to accomplish. And that is give of yourself to others. And I'll repeat it. Give of yourself to others. Take risks. Tell your own story. Be vulnerable. Be present. And then invite others to join you. And they may not always accept your invitation, but you extend it with grace and the option to RSVP at a later date. We don't hold other people's response hostage as payment to engage. We engage, and if they choose not to participate or they aren't ready, we accept that. We give of ourselves because we are committed, wholeheartedly committed to this work. Beautifully said, Brie. Thank you for sharing this brave space with me today. We are learning so much from others that in each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or resource that is impactful to us. Rachel Cargill is a public academic writer and lecturer. Her activist and academic work are rooted in providing intellectual discourse, tools, and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. Her social media platforms engage a community of over 1.8 million, through which Rachel guides conversations, encourages critical thinking, and nurtures meaningful engagement with people all over the world. Her upcoming book, I Don't Want Your Love and Light is an examination of feminism through the lens of race and how we are in relationship with ourselves and one another. And if I'm being completely honest, Rachel makes me uncomfortable sometimes, but it is exactly why I follow her because I know that when I feel that discomfort, I'm learning. If I scroll through my social media and everybody is just like me, thinks like me, approaches life like me, reads the same books as me, What do I have to gain? 
So I'm learning so much from Rachel and I hope that you'll follow her on Instagram at rachel.cargill. And you can also learn more about her work on her website at rachelcargill.com. After listening to this episode, whether on your own or with your work teams, family, or friends, we'd like to leave you with a challenge. What is the problem you most want to fix and can you name it? How do you play a role? What is one small way you can give of yourself? As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at luncheonunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at Lunch and Unlearn and Facebook at Lunch and Unlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time. <laughs>